America. My name is Armio Frimpong. I come to you live usually every Thursday about this time, but I'm going to try to start doing more candidate interviews because I like the people running in these United States for different offices. So I want to talk to them and have you talk to them and have you watch me talk to them because I speak to them in a different way. So right now I brought in um, a guy running in the state of Pennsylvania. He's going to tell yourself, he's going to tell you a little bit about himself and let me just bring him in now. So tell us what office are you running for and why? Go ahead, Mr. Prescott. All right. Um, yeah, I'm Paul Prescott. I'm running for state Senate in Pennsylvania in the 8th District. Um, this encompasses um, large portions of West Philadelphia, Southwest Philadelphia, also some portions of Delaware County and the surrounding suburbs. Um, why I'm running? Okay. Well, uh, I'm a, before I did this, I was a, some of you might know me from doing Jacobin. Uh, I write for Jacobin. I was doing their show, but uh, my main job was as a public school teacher teaching uh, high school social studies, also very active um, union activist. So my own union, the Philadelphia Federation of Teachers. Um, so I think that really speaks to a big reason why I'm running. Um, you know, the public school system is in absolute crisis, especially in many urban areas like Philadelphia. Um, you know, I've taught, it's common to teach in schools where, um, you know, buildings are literally falling apart. We've had big issues with lead, mold, asbestos in our schools. Um, class sizes ballooning cutting support staff. You know, a few years ago, uh, we when we got a Republican governor, he passed what was called here the doomsday budget, um, big uh, budget cuts. And so, you know, we've had students die during a school day because there weren't on-duty um, school nurses there. Um, so that's the kind of crisis level we're talking about. Um, and, you know, the solution here is, you know, massive public investment. And there's a lot we can do at the state level Pennsylvania has a huge problem. I mean, the, a lot of our wealthiest corporations, individuals are not paying their taxes, or we have something called the Delaware tax loophole where they will store their wealth in Delaware to get around it. Um, so we have to go after that wealth to fund the things we need, whether that's public schools, healthcare, education, housing, infrastructure. Um, this is the where we need to go. And I'm going up against this longtime incumbent who's never actually had anyone challenge him. Um, has been in the pockets of school privatizers. So I think we needed a public school teacher to to run against someone like that. Okay. So in the Pennsylvania state constitution, the primary funder for public education is supposed to be the state? Right. Yeah. Okay. So the primary funder for public education is supposed to be the state. And as it stands, the state's not kicking in. It's due to meet the needs that you see in the classroom. Now, right. I know that you are uh, active in the teachers union there. What did you learn about organized labor? I assume you grew up in Pennsylvania. Did you grow up in Pennsylvania? Yeah, right. Yeah. So what did, as a student, what did you learn about organized labor growing up in Pennsylvania? Well, it's a good question. I actually learned originally from some of my family roots, not so much in Pennsylvania. So my father is from Barbados, the Caribbean. Um, and he was also a teacher, so he had those summer breaks. And so I used to live in Barbados with him and my family on that side in the summertime. And I had a lot of activists in my family in the Barbados Labor Party who were previously union activists. So that was like the first seeds of that. My real personal um, contact with unions came my freshman year at Temple University back in 2010. This was a, this is a university in North Philadelphia. Um, there's a hospital, Temple Hospital, attached to the university. The nurses went on strike for um, 
many things, including patient safety, which is becoming a big, bigger issue now with COVID safe staffing ratios. Um, so I kind of got involved in the student support committee for that strike. Um, I count myself very lucky because 2010, this is right after the economic crisis. That year, there was a record low number of strikes in the country, and that was one of them. And it happened to be a very successful one. I kind of got involved in trying to mobilize the community and students to support them. And so that was a great concrete real life example of this is how working people can stand up to corporate power and actually win something. Um, uh, but yeah. I find that to be a little bit problematic that you learned how the the mechanisms of, of worker power in Barbados and outside of your school system, because schools are supposed right. to actually enculturate us into being active and prepared citizens. And it didn't, doesn't sound like in the classroom, you learned what you needed to learn in order to organize units. So right. there's a way to, excuse me, I just came from a, exercising a little bit. There's a way in which we talk about schools preparing us, making us career and college ready. Mm -hmm. But are you really career ready if you don't know the principles of organized labor and power? Like that's right. that's that's an open question for me. Yeah, that's a really great point. And, you know, like I said, I taught social studies um, primarily, you know, usually by grade, you have a different focus. So I was primarily doing world and African-American history. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's something I mean, with my background, of course, I love to talk about labor. So that's a big thing I talk about with students. And also, I think, I mean, connects to their lives more than just like the formal democratic structures, because everyone can relate to. Yeah, my parents work. Um, some of them were parents of union members, or some of them were saying like, "Yeah, like we we don't make enough to make get by, or the minimum wage should be raised." It's more direct. They're all thinking about work in the future. Um, so I think it's a way to connect the students' lives even more. But I, I agree with you. I mean, we should be teaching labor history much more heavily in the schools, um, and really just generally civic engagement uh, in a much more real and tangible way. Um, and yeah, I think teaching labor history and current labor politics is a big part of that. And just knowing your rights on the job should be taught in our schools. Yeah, and what it takes to secure them. I mean, Daniel Allen, Danielle Allen wrote a nice little book called Education Inequality or Equality in Education. I forget which one goes with. But she argues that like this push in STEM education with the idea that if we teach everybody STEM, it'll uh, make them a little bit more attractive on the job market confuses the way that we actually produce enough jobs and we produce enough wealth, it's the distribution. So we need to teach people to fight for a fair distribution of the wealth that's produced. And that's the quality of education that will actually secure a democratic citizenry that can do the job. So we're more comfortable telling people to teach a higher caliber of math than we are comfortable teaching them like I said, the principles of union organizing. And what right. does that mean about our culture? And are we really like that serious about the other right. thing? Yeah, and I think it also speaks to, um, if we're focusing on labor, you know, because today union density is so low and the labor movement is unfortunately so weak, you know, less and less people generally have a connection to it, whether less, less chance someone knows a friend, a cousin, a brother, whatever, that is in a union. And so if it's not being taught in schools and there's essentially no knowledge base, basis of it if you don't have um, direct experience with it. Um, and also, you know, there's a bigger question here of um, 
I mean, obviously, again, I'm a former public school teacher. I'm fighting for more public education funding and, and all of that. So obviously, I believe education is critically important. But there's also, I think, a flaw in thinking, many people thinking education itself can solve these deeper issues of structural poverty. Um, you know what I mean? Because we can educate people, but if the actual jobs are not there or being provided or the labor being spread out enough uh, in a good way with actually good paying jobs, you can be highly educated, but that won't get you out of poverty. And I think that's a thing we have to think about as well. Like teachers, we cannot solve this problem um, by ourselves. You know, this is where to have to be massive job programs, um, a discussion around shortening the work week and the work day to spread labor around. Um, so, you know, I think sometimes as much as I think education, of course, is really important. Some people think it can be like the magic bullet to solve some of these deep structural problems. Um, you know, there's a quote I know when uh, Bayard Rustin said this when talking about the freedom budget in the mid 1960s. I'm going to butcher the exact quote, but he said uh, he was talking about this idea of job training during the war in poverty. And he was saying you're training these kids for jobs that don't exist. And he's saying, if you take a, a you know, young kid from the ghetto and train them for a job that doesn't exist, what you're doing is creating a Molotov cocktail. You're raising expectations that are not actually being met. Um, and you're going to create an explosive situation. So job training is all good. But if there's no actual jobs being created for enough people to go to, you're not really solving the problem. Yeah, both Rustin and King and a woman named Sadie Alexander all said jobs first. Job training is a is a con. Mm. Now, what? Now, as a high school history civics teacher, what were you mandated to teach the students about labor and jobs? Well, we weren't really mandated much. I, I mean, one thing I'll say, and this could be, I, I know it's not the same, especially probably in more suburban and rural districts, but I oh. found in the Philadelphia context, thankfully, you know, we were not, as social studies teachers, really dictated much what we had to teach. Again, just in my personal experience, I actually found a lot of freedom to right. do what I wanted. And one of the reasons, and this is both a good and bad thing, social studies is not a standardized tested subject. So they focus on math, science, and reading. Now, I think it's good that it's not standardized tested because I don't like those tests. The bad part of it is I think the reason it isn't is because they don't really value it. So it's right. like, we don't care. But I think the positive benefits of that is that we didn't, we, I don't think our curriculum is as controlled as like reading and math. Um, I mean, that's, that's yeah. good and bad insofar as teachers yeah. can't teach what the teachers don't know. You happen to know quite yeah, a bit right. about uh, labor history and the functioning of like, you know, unions in the greater, you know, political right. ecosystem. Yeah. But history but yeah, and civics, not, excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. History and again, and civics like, teachers who are not so similarly blessed, right. the kids get nothing. Yeah, and it's like, you know, in the curriculum, of course, yeah, when you get to the Industrial Revolution and stuff, there there's some stuff about labor, you know, child labor laws, stuff like that, but not much deeper. And, you know, I think especially when I taught, you know, in Philadelphia public schools, African-American history is actually a required course. Mostly sophomores take it, which I think is pretty rare in this country to, that it's required in a high school school district. But, you know, I really bring in the labor, and this is something I always write and talk about is the connection between labor and civil rights. My students always complain why you're always talking about a Philip Randolph all the time. But, um, you know, so I think that's an important element to bring in to the conversation of African-American history, of course, um, and really all of our history in this country. Um, but yeah, you're right. You know, teachers, if, if you don't already have that knowledge base or passion for it, you probably won't be bringing that 
into, into the, the classroom. classroom. But as a state senator, you'd be in position to write the standards um, for the state insofar as what it means to be career and college ready, what we what we talk about when we mean like, you know, adequate Pennsylvania ed public education, what right. we're willing to fund and what kind of curricula we're willing to support. So would you would you put some money behind changing the standards and expecting teachers to know something more about labor history and communicate that content? Yeah, I think that's something that that we should try. And also, you know, I think one of the most powerful ways people to, to know about unions is direct experience with them. And, and one thing I that that's a real tragedy is like, you know, as they're cutting generally, they're also cutting like career technical education programs. And this is like a double whammy because think about it. It's like you're many students who either cannot go to college because of financial means or their schools are not funded enough to really prepare them. Whereas they might think, well, if I can get a good paying trade job, you know, I can still have a decent, secure life without going to college. You're cutting that too. It's like, what do we expect to happen? And one thing I would really want to see is like, and we have this to some degree, but to expand it, a much big more connection between many unions, especially in the building trades and the public schools where the really robustly funded career technical education programs that can kind of serve as a pathway, not just to the career, but into these unions. So like partnering with the schools in apprenticeship programs. Uh, I think this also is part of this um, issue that has historically existed about discrimination and exclusion in the building trades, um, which has a long complicated history and plays out differently in different areas of the country. But, um, you know, again, I think having a deeper connection to public schools and getting kids out of there into these unions and into these trades would be really important. And, you know, we have a perfect, I don't want to use the word excuse, but a perfect reason right now. I mean, we want to, you know, we need a big infrastructural overhaul. I mean, not just fixing existing infrastructure, like while we have roads, they should not be as bad as they are in Philadelphia, but moving towards a clean energy future, uh, public transit, building retrofits, geothermal, wind, solar, you know, this is the perfect excuse in the moment to, you know, revamp the trades and really get a lot of people funneled into there for good jobs. All right. So as it stands, a lot of these, so as a state legislature, you have this weird kind of conglomeration of power where you can control curriculum and you can control contracts. And so we've talked a little bit about curriculum and how we think about public school funding. Now let's talk about how we're going to break up some of these big contracts and make sure that Black businesses get them and black and the, the money funnels down. Because right now it just doesn't happen, right? For a variety of reasons. The contracts are too big. So these generational businesses that have been around since the Klan end up like feeding at the trough. And then there's the lobbyists that come through. So like what's it gonna take to democratize the contracting at the state level to make sure that like it's not just the same five legacy companies that get all of right. the big contracts. Yeah. I mean, that's a big question. Um, yeah, I mean, I think on the basic level, especially the big companies and the monopolies, like we have to be willing to take them on. And on a very basic level, like, I mean, I don't see why a company like Comcast in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia is getting tax breaks when they're, again, they, they've even since COVID alone made $40, $50 billion. Um, another thing is, you know, Pennsylvania is a really big fracking state. Um, Multi-billion dollar industry pays zero taxes. And it's not, not even tax evasion, They're, the law is saying they do not have to pay taxes. So that's a very simple thing of like, you know, if anyone should be getting the assistance, um, I mean, I'm not really a fan of tax breaks period, but it's like, in terms of business assistance, it should be going to these the smaller businesses 
um, and things like that. And that should be made the priority. Um, and yeah, but I mean, it's tough because I mean, like you said, I mean, the army of lobbyists that the the big companies have and most legislators not coming from my standpoint of what they want to do or what they're running for office for. Um, that's a big problem. Um, or I think like when there are big contracts, I mean, kind of going back to labor, like stuff like project labor agreements, which ensure a certain minimal labor standard um, and, and payment and things like that is important. Prevailing wage, which helps apply to non-union workers as well, would be really important to insist on, uh, especially if we're thinking about big infrastructure projects. Um, but yeah, I think we should be attacking. Um, and, you know, something I liked about what, you know, a little bit about Kashama Sawant in Seattle is kind of picking an enemy, a big corporate um, villain to pick a fight with and mobilize people around. I think in their context, context, it was Amazon, which is definitely good villain in any setting. Like I'm thinking about in this state, Amazon's coming too, but also Comcast, these natural gas companies, like really focusing the public anger on that um, to try and, you know, limit their power and say like, you know, we are going to be assisting businesses. What about these small businesses that they need way more help than these, you know, monopolies and corporate giants? All right. So it seems to me that you're in a bit of an uphill fight with respect to getting this message out and getting people ready to fight. Do you think, I always say that, look, look, if you are either elected or you're trying to be elected, you have two jobs. The first job is to try to get the bills you need passed, right? And the second job is if you can't do that, clarify the fight. Yeah. You have to clarify the fight. And if you're not clarifying the fight, this is my problem with Obama. I think he spent eight years and people were more confused after after his presidency than than he than before so you have to clarify the fight but you can't clarify the fight if there isn't the communications infrastructure available for you to do this so do you think as a candidate your message is getting suffused enough or are there institutional barriers to getting you the media attention that you you need in order to actually make a case Right. Yeah, that's a good question. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm running within a certain district in terms of the, in terms of the task of the campaign and getting elected, you know, a certain district with a limited amount, limited amount of voters. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, the institution barrier, of course, is like how expensive it is to get TV ads and cable ads. Um, so a big, you know, I, but also I think the most powerful message is the door to door face to face stuff. So that is the overwhelming thing that we're doing. And of course, it's not just me. This is where the volunteer armies and the endorsing organizations such as groups like DSA also, you know, we have seven labor unions that have endorsed the campaign as well. So Teamsters are getting out there, knocking doors, postal workers, union, city workers, and their networks as well. So the door-to-door thing is critical. Um, yeah, uh, yes, we have social media. We're doing our best on there. We're, you know, we're, we're going to do some radio ads. We're going to do some mailers. But I think the door-to-door thing is critical. But yeah, the structural barrier is, of course, just how expensive to get the paid media is. And if you're an incumbent with corporate donors, it's way easier to go up on there. But I think you bring up a good question about in terms of clarifying the fight and political political education after being elected. I mean, something I've thought about, you know, and I've really enjoyed knocking doors. I mean, it's going really well and people really appreciate that direct contact is like keeping that operation in place after the election for other things. I mean, whether it's letting people know about a certain program they can take advantage of or something deeper about, you know, we're waging this fight against a developer or we're waging this fight, you know, Amazon is coming to Southwest Philadelphia in the district. 
you know, one of my endorsing unions is the Teamsters. They're trying to organize them. And, you know, I can play a direct role in trying to help them organize, you know, go to the doors of the members, workers in Amazon and district and tell them about the union and, you know, try to influence the fight that way. Um, and I think keeping that sort of door knocking op- apparatus in place after the election would be really important as a way of continuing to clarify the fight and political education um, over time. So I also think that as a state legislature, you're only one person except in your district where you are the person. Yeah. Which means it's pot. I mean, if you call a radio station, do they do they put you on? Do you have uh, that kind you, of call? As like an elected official. As um, an elected official. Yeah, and again, I I haven't I'm not in office yet, so I, I can't say for sure. But I think generally, yeah, and um and this is something that can be definitely utilized. You know. Yeah, that's that's not a negligible. That might be as important as the ability to actually draft legislation. I mean, if you can call, if and I say this for everyone at home, if you're elected official is elected, they have the power to call the radio station, say, I have something to say. And more often than not, the radio, excuse me, the radio station has a fiduciary responsibility to put them on, right? right? Or schedule a time for them to come on. And so you need to expect your elected representatives to be a little bit more vocal than they have been. And this is not just like going to a friendly radio station. You could probably call your Fox News affiliate and right. get time on them, which I think, you know, you should probably do. Yeah, yeah. And and I was going to say, I mean, you just use the word expect more. And because I, I was about to say, like, you know, we need this should be part of the expectation. Like we and I'm sure, you know, lefties, we are already thinking this. But, you know, this got to stop with this pathetic excuse. Because this has come up in the context of my campaign. You know, Republicans control the state legislature. Sometimes the question will be like, well, Paul, what, what are you going to do if you're still in the minority and you can't get stuff done? But it's like, you know, the, there's a you have a platform and resources that come with the office. And again, you can't work miracles, but part of that is the platform and the political education. And there's a lot you can do that doesn't involve just passing a law or even if you're in the minority. Part of it is forcing an issue on the agenda and knowing, OK, we, we're not going to pass it this year. but we have to raise it now to build up the majority eventually and get our base motivated on it. Um, so yeah, you're right. You know, we have to, that is what we should be expecting from elected officials. And, and again, as a labor person, that's actually what I'm most excited about is like, Hey, a strike breaks out in my district. What can I do to tip the scales in their favor to directly intervene in a way that, and this is actually, you know, um, I never get his name right. Branko Markdicic, I think, uh, who writes for Jackman. He wrote this four-part thing about Bernie Sanders' career before the presidency. And the most inter- interesting part was some of his years in Vermont, where it talked about what he did kind of as being the organizer-in-chief. I mean, he, you know, when there was a union vote, he wrote letters and knocked on the doors to the workers, convincing them to join the union. He would convene, you know, public sector union um, bargaining strategy conferences that so this is the stuff like, again, it doesn't take passing a law to do that. You can be in the minority. Um, but that is, I think, the most inspiring thing to me about the Sanders campaign. And what to me would have been the most interesting about him winning was this idea of organizer in chief. And that's a dynamic we just don't see much in politics, in U.S. politics, especially not recently. Um, and that was what kind of excited me about if he is elected, who knows what this dynamic unleashed could do to the U.S. politics. But yeah, that's that's part of the vision that I w- really want to be taking forward. That is not just about being in the legislature 
you know, passing laws. Right. So you're uh, the the person in your seat right now is also a Democrat, right? You're running as a Democrat yes. and the person, right? It's an incumbent Democrat. Now, as a responsible candidate, you filled out all your paperwork, you did what you're supposed to do, you, you filed and all of that stuff. And then you sent a kindly worded email to the campaign requesting a debate, I suspect, right? Have you done that yet? Not yet. So that should be coming soon. Um, yeah. And right. this has been a, also a weird year because of the census here and redistricting. Um, we just finally got them final maps of where our actual district is. And uh, we, there hasn't even been the petitioning process hasn't started yet. It usually is already done by now. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, but yeah, um, that's definitely something we're going to be seeking out. It is a debate. Yeah. That's good because a lot of these Democratic incumbents don't like to sit down and actually take questions from a journalist or take questions from the other candidates. They would rather duck the debate. And right. I don't like that as a trend. So like you could commit that at least three times between now and election day, you're willing to sit down next to the candidate or at least share a Zoom screen and right. field questions from either the candidate or like a, a journalist in order to flesh out these ideas, right? Yeah, absolutely. And something I'm looking forward to, we'll probably be doing soon. Um, you know, my, there's like a West Philadelphia block captains group um, that meets. And I know they recently did this for state house candidates, a forum like that, um, where candidate could speak and they'll get questions from these block captains. So I think that's going to be happening very soon in this race. Um, yeah, I definitely look forward to it. Because, yeah, I mean, these, I'll, I'll give you the context of my race. You know, my opponent uh, essentially inherited the seat from his father, who was a state senator has been in the seat 24 years. This is the first time he's ever had a primary challenge. So, you know, but he has to really speak to of like, life has essentially declined in the district um, for a very long time and is reaching a crisis point. You know, they gotta be able to say, defend their record uh, and explain what what, did, what what happened. What are they gonna do differently? What do they think they are doing well? So yeah, they have to be forced to try to defend that. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And I, I think it's actually a shameful habit of our party. Now, you have to watch out for some of these local parties because they think all of that's divisive. They'll say, Paul, oh, yeah. you're just being divisive. We don't want to debate. We want a forum where everyone just kind of talks. And maybe you'll come one week and he'll come another week. You don't have to be on the same stage at the same time. But that's not what I need as a uh, as a, as a citizen like who wants to actually right. make a decision between you two. So what right. are you going to do? It's a party apparatus, I assume, is going to be for the other person, for the incumbent. So yeah, what, what's yeah. what's your plan when the when the enemy is the party? Yeah, well, I mean, this gets to, and this is what's so interesting about how this race is developing, because in many ways, yes, I'm a quote unquote outside insurgent, outsider insurgent, but you know, thinking about the support we've been able to build, especially with some of these mainstream unions that are thought of as like part of the party apparatus um, are also joining this campaign. Um, and also it reflects, you know, that party itself has really hollowed out over the years. Um, so we're in, and we've seen this actually in Philadelphia in the last three to four years, a actually a lot of people just like me beating out longtime incumbents. And you're just seeing the power of the structure of the party is not the same as it was. And many people are not just going to blindly follow that and say, oh, well, my war leader said this, so I'm going to do it. You know, it's a much different structure now um, and it has less weight. And this is where, again, going directly to people through the door knocking is, you know, one, one of the best routes that you can do. Um, 
but you know, it also it can be varied. You know, some wards might just stay neutral in this fight, um, things like that. Um, so yeah, but I think going directly to people is the best way to get around that, um, and and just recognize that we shouldn't take their power as like inevitable. Um, and I think it is declining the ability to just say like, well, we got to support incumbents. Like less and less people are really feeling that right now. Um, and there's definitely, and again, even within my district in the last year or last two years, there's been a new city council person kicked out a long time incumbent, a new state house rep kicked out a long time incumbent. Um, and, and that's in within my district that I'm running in. So there's definitely opportunities there. So besides the union, is there any other social group or social political infrastructure that you are tapping into? Yeah, so definitely, you know, I've been a longtime member of, of Philadelphia DSA. They've been a core supporter and especially, you know, and this is an organization there. They're already in the mode of door knocking. Um, we, we do it all the time. They've been instrumental. Um, Working Families Party has endorsed as well. And they're lending their resources. Um, another organization called Reclaim Philadelphia that is focused on. Uh, and also they focus on the, like dealing with the ward system and like getting more progressives on the nitty gritty city ward level. Um, they've endorsed as well. Um, and this is all source of volunteer power. Another organization, Free the Ballot, which has, um, they work with um, formerly incarcerated people, um, has endorsed the campaign as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is like the, the coalition that we need is the groups like that and labor, you know, working together on something like this. Um, it can be pretty powerful. And, and again, I think, I mean, obviously every DSA chapter is different, but, you know, I think Philadelphia, we've, there's been this institutional knowledge built up over years of like, people are just really used to door knocking and doing mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And so like they were, they moved pretty quickly when this campaign came about and they've been pretty instrumental. Okay, so in 60 days, you can't get policy passed, but you can do other things. What's going to be different about the way people talk about politics in your district three months into your tenure? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, where to start? Yeah, I mean, I think one of them is just on the basic communication level of reaching out in a way beyond just like, oh, well, I will announce stuff on my social media or you can call my office, but like the kind of outreach like, uh, I mentioned before of going door to door. Um, and also I think like thinking about my constituents as political actors and what I mean by that, you know, I think about something like, oh, there's a strike going on. Let me try to mobilize constituents to support the picket line. Or, I mean, we have a big problem with all kinds of developers in the city, you know, let's mobilize a fight around developers. And like, as a state Senator, I'm not just going to play neutral or say, well, I'm fighting this in Harrisburg. I'm going to go, in my district and say, here's how we can try to mobilize to fight this. So I think that kind of attitude would be something. Um, and I think assembling the, um, uh, how do I wanna put this? Assembling unusual but necessary coalitions that like we're, we're just going to need. Um, and I think we started to do this in this race because you know the common thing that happens is sadly, you know, labor will just back incumbents. Someone like me who's considered a progressive socialist, you know, is not going to get these union endorsements. And we've been able to buck that trend. And, you, you know, people are kind of confused of like, wow, we have DSA here canvassing with Teamsters, canvassing with sanitation workers. What's what's happening? So like that's powerful coalition. And that's actually the coalition we need to really win, I think, anything in this country. And one thing I'm looking to expand on, one thing I've actually been hopeful about you know, at the federal government level, uh, things are not going well, to say the least, um, especially when it comes to 
action on climate, but we're starting to see states, um, I think, starting to really get it right when it comes to climate and jobs. And more and more, they are passing or getting close to passing good legislation that actually has support from labor and is done in a way that is going to create good union jobs in an infrastructure overhaul. So Illinois recently passed a really good bill that um, has worked, kind of worked this out. of like, how are we going to transition out of certain industries? How are we going to create new ones? And we're going to do it with union labor. And they're going to be part of this process from the very beginning. And I think brokering stuff like that is what I, you know, bring environmentalists and labor in the building trades together to hammer out what's going to look like in this state. Let's put forward a vision. Let's agree on it. Let's get buy-in and pressure on it and bring people together who are normally not together. Um, I think that that was something I would want to be signature about how I actually govern. Okay. So if West Philadelphia is any place else like these United States, the black population in your district has not yet been made whole. What's the path between where they are right now and where they should be? And how does that path go through politics? Yeah. Uh, I mean, broadly speaking, I think, um, you know, just a, a vast expansion of the public sector. I mean, this is something I've wrote about and harped on a lot. Um, even looking at labor, you know, I would argue that, I mean, I think the public sector, public sector jobs, public sector unions, and public sector institutions have been like one of the single greatest factors mitigating black poverty over the years. You think about, um, again, because as it stands, you know, black workers are disproportionately in the public sector. These are jobs that are disproportionately secure, better pay, unionized. I mean, think about something like the Postal Service. Um, also thinking about institutions, so public schools. I mean, in Philadelphia, uh, majority of the students in public schools are black and brown. And so, I mean, if we are defunding and disinvesting from public education, it's clear who is suffering. So I think fully funding our schools and creating an actual real public school system that works is part of this path out of, you know, uh, actual racial equality or, ra or racial justice. Um, and I think really just that, again, the public sector in general really flows through all of that. So that, that's also the path of like affordable housing, um, better, what, much better infrastructure, safe neighborhoods. Um, you know, safe neighborhoods, I think, are built on the backbone of good jobs, you know, good schools, um, a safe environment and things like that. Because, um, yeah, I think austerity, you know, the people who suffer first, and the hardest from austerity are, to, I think, always black and brown communities. Um, yeah. Good. So at the state level, you actually have the authority to loosen up any barriers that um, Philadelphia, the city has in contracting and making sure that they actually spread the contracts around so that they contracts make it to black communities or black business right. owners who hire black workers. And that could come at the state level, but like it might be either a constitutional change or just a statutory, um, like opening up the the city's powers to contract with a little bit more discrimination, as about people who've been left out. Is that something you would be open to doing? Yeah, and I think, and I think with this, like, um, yeah, I, we need to make sure you know it's also filtering down to the workers because sometimes it could be like a minority-owned company or something but then it's like how much do they how many people do they actually employ um in, in this sort of thing and because sometimes this approach has been tried before tried before and not really a comprehensive way um and also you know this is actually i think the the big infrastructure 
projects are part of how we get at this problem of discrimination and exclusion in the trades. Because I think part of what's happened is that you're, t you know, if you're taking a union in the trades that's already disproportionately white and male, and they're recruiting from their social networks for apprenticeship programs, they're just kind of, even if they're not necessarily racist people as individuals, mm -hmm. they're reproducing that thing. And I think what ultimately will need to happen is just expanding the pool of labor, period. And part of that is like having they're actually needing to be created jobs. And I, I think, and in many ways, the private sector is not going to be creating these jobs that we need. So this is where we need the kind of public works approach. And what that would do is expand the need to uh, expand the, the apprenticeship programs and the pool of labor than what it exists. And I think only until we do that, can we really get at this problem that it has existed for a long time in the trades. And this is again, where I think there needs to be closer partnerships like with public schools. Because again, if you're, if these if these unions are closely connected to Philly public schools, they are disproportionately connected to black and brown students who can get access to these jobs that they might have been denied before. Because right now it's kind of a strategy of like, well, we have a limited supply of labor and let's keep it that way. Um, you know, and we're going to only recruit from our existing networks of workers for these jobs. And the, those networks are disproportionately white. Um, so we, th there needs to just be a big expansion, I think, to really get at that problem. So in the name of a public good or public safety, even, you could actually contract, you could ask the, in the RFP, so what is your plan to make sure that the workers who are employed in this project, in this bridge or in this, you know, road or right. in this building um, are, you know, well compensated and, you know, from historically disadvantaged groups? Like that could right. be part of the RFP process that they right. have to yeah. also pitch in a plan. And you could say that as a matter of public safety, because it's not safe having so many people in the state without good jobs. Yeah. Um, and, and it's part of the public value. So you get the bridge, but also, you know, the, the money into the pockets of the bridge builders. And that's, that's once again, good for public safety. And it's, it's on top of the good that the bridge provides. Right. Yeah. And, and again, I think, going a step further besides saying like, well, I'm trying to get this agreement passed and negotiate. And if, and if it's not, you know, I'm going to work with, if there are groups on the ground that want to protest around this and, you know, make a fight out of it, be there as part of making a fight out of it as a legislator, um, you know, and, and that using the leverage that way to try and try and get that outcome. Um, you know, so again, this is where I just always come back to this idea of like the organizer in chief um, of bringing that element into the political process. And like as an elected official, and again, the movements, I don't think depend on elected officials. Many of them exist outside of that. But being someone that's willing to say, like, you know, I'm going to work with the movement on this or I'm going to try to encourage it to be like, well, if you can back me up in the streets or wherever on this thing I'm doing to try and work in tandem is like the way you know we, way we need to go. Yeah, well, I'm a big fan of um, one of the things elected officials can do besides pushing policies, grow the people's capacity to govern themselves and enable them to exercise power as like wherever they are, right? right. So that's where you can lend your voice and lend your support. So how can people uh, find you and, and, and support what you're doing? Yeah, so, you know, my website is www.paulprescott.com. That's Prescott with a D at the end. Um, there you'll find everything about the campaign. 
Um, you know, on Twitter, I'm at Paul underscore Prescott. Um, same thing on, on Instagram. Um, and yeah, please, you know, one thing I hate about being a candidate, you always have to beg for money, but that is how our system is at the moment until we have publicly funded elections. So, you know, I'm up against someone that, uh, I'll tell you this, his biggest donor is a man named Jeffrey Yass. You can look him up, Y-A-S-S, who not only funds school privatization, he literally funded buses that went to the Capitol riots. Um, and uh, also the fracking industry. So he's got big money. Uh, we actually have seven times as many donors than he has. Um, so we have a grassroots fundraising operations, but you know, any little bit helps. Um, this is not going towards like fancy shirts. This is to pay staff to print literature. Um, so yeah, if anyone's willing to support in that way, that would that would be uh, you know really appreciated. So what's the biggest non-obvious thing that people should be talking about, like either political campaigns or political life? that you figured out like what's what's kind of a non-obvious insight about a problem that we we have with the process mm. or how we do politics yeah it's a good question um well um kind of in this process i mean some things i think i may have already known abstractly you kind of oh. see how in this process things are kept in place like the current order going through this process kind of thing gives you a window onto it. And I think, you know, um, one thing that just is coming to mind, this, this process of like even grants and nonprofits and like you kind of see an insidious structure taking place. And to be clear, I'm not saying like if someone's part of a nonprofit, you're an evil person or anything like that, but- I, I say that all the time. Right. <laughs> I think I'll say it. Yeah, uh, no, I, I think it's it's dubious. They kind of usurp the power, uh, the the, uh, terrain of government, but they're not accountable like a government right. should be. So yeah, and I guess what up... I mean by that, there's a difference between, I, to me, a lower level worker and like the board of a big nonprofit. But I'll give you an example. I mean, we're, you know, public safety. I mean, we're in a big crisis and areas, especially in my areas of Philadelphia, you know, gun violence is just, uh, violent crime is, is on the right. It's a big problem. Um, and, you know, there's all these groups that deal with this issue of, of gun violence prevention. And this this insidious structure is set up where like they these groups depend on politicians for grants and so it's like even if you have people here who now this gun violence of course is a result of deep systemic and structural problems right. that have well, been there for decades look, people who have access to 25 dollars an hour jobs 30 dollars an hour jobs aren't shooting other people in the street yeah right and so you know but you know these people working these groups i think you know they're they're using this route to address this problem, but it's a deeper structural thing. But then here's the problem. So then it's, I come along challenging the incumbent and the conversation might be, well, yeah, I want to support you. But like, if I support you and you lose, I'm going to lose the grants that the state senator is getting for me. So I'm sorry, I can't do that. But then you, you just see in that sense, this is the structural way things are just kept in place and people are kept from stepping out of line. And, you know, I, I really don't have an easy answer for that because, again, it's, it's a real structural thing. It's not about, you know, it because it, these groups are set up that way. But this is why we have to be forceful of like this is a problem we need to solve on the front end. Because, again, like you said, if people had better jobs, better schools to begin with, you know, because right now the model is like, let's sprinkle some funding on these groups. And it might sound impressive, like five million dollars. But in the scheme of the whole budget, it's not. Whereas, like, to actually fix our schools. We're talking about billions of dollars um, and that needs to be spent on the front end 
Um, so I don't know, something like that has just given me a window into like how things are kept in place and how this is why it's really hard to over, you know, overturn the system. Um, so yeah, we got, but we got to find some way. Well, I was just thinking people talk about grant funded positions and how, you know, you, you work in business uh, in, in politics and public sector long enough. You always hear about grant funded positions or grant funded position for one year and a grant. That's just a gig. Anytime I hear a grant funded position, that's just like a gig where like the funder of the grant controls the content of what's going on because they decide if it's re-upped the next year. Right. So you might as well be driving an Uber. Like you like you like it's a form of slavery because if it's a grant funded job for one year, that means whoever provides the grant like has all of this insidious control and discretion right. over like right. the content. Yeah. It's a huge problem because this has replaced civil Jobs. society well yeah i like or as far as far as advocacy advocacy you know instead of like parties that are robust or um unions or other groups that are yeah. membership based it's been replaced by this and it's just not the same um so yeah it's, it's a big problem i mean it's been and it's like ballooned as a problem exponentially um and in many many people cannot even envision a way of trying to make change that's not the nonprofit ngo model um so and you're saying yeah. that five hundred one c threes will not save west philadelphia yeah they won't um yeah i think you know it's also these groups are prevented from making political you know but that's another structural thing of like if they want to support a progressive they can't um in, in different ways um so yeah i mean this is where it's like there's no i don't think there's ultimately no replacement from building back up civil society in the form of uh, and again, our parties are different than actual member-based parties. Um, that's a whole other question. But political parties, unions, actual neighborhood groups that are member-based, um, that's how it has happened. And that's, of course, much easier said than done. But but this campaign has kind of shown me the inner workings of the process of like how things can keep in place uh, structurally. Right. And it's, a lot of people just are worried about their own jobs. Right. right. So you're running into people who would support you or throw their organization behind you, but their job depends on making sure they're with the winner. So what does that mean? Yeah. Right. And yeah, I mean, the, the only, it's like, it's weird. I mean, the win more, we just need to win. And uh, so it's kind of a, but you know, one thing that's helpful, I mean, look in my context, you know, one thing I'm excited about, if I win, I'd be actually joining a mini squad that's kind of already in place at the state level. So again, like I mentioned, in the last three to four years, we've actually had a slew of wins in Philadelphia politics of like other candidates similar to me. And what this has done is now changed the calculus of maybe more pragmatic political actors because all of a sudden now me running, they can't say anymore, there's no chance. Now more people were forced to say, well, look, something's happening here. Like, it's not just a fluke. This person won, then this, then this. So that has now allowed, I think, space for more, maybe more of these unions to get on board now, and they wouldn't before because they've seen this wins happen. So like, we kind of, we need to just kind of increase the win rate and get on a roll to a point. And I think eventually create what's exciting. I mean, it's almost like the, the electoral coalitions are changing before our very eyes. And again, I think I'm in my campaign, that's what I'm excited about. Because uh, again, like we have this coalition that really has not been here in electoral campaign, at least in a very long time. And this can now be the basis of the new coalition of the future for future candidates. So now it's not 
you know, now can just be a given that the Teamsters will back uh, a democratic socialist, you know, and yeah. that's what is that could be at stake here. Um, so, but yeah, the, the breakthrough wins are really important to kind of establish a new logic in all of this. So how are you going to change the media infrastructure? Because right now, like I said, teachers can't teach what the teachers don't know. The reporters can't report on what the reporters don't feel comfortable talking about. Right. right? So, uh, you know, if your local news anchor doesn't come from a union background, they're not going to actually write the story. They'll find a news editor. So what's going to go on with the media infrastructure? What needs to change with respect to that? Yeah. Um, and this is where, you know, it's so interesting these last few years, like the independent left media has exploded. And I've been part of that with, with Jacobin. Um, and that's, I mean, that's encouraging in some ways, you know, and in others, you know, it's still siloed and there's so many different things. And I think ultimately, you know, it's not reaching, there's still so many people it doesn't reach at all. Um, and so I think trying to change that would be important. Um, you know, I think the decline of local, like even just local newspapers is a problem. Um, so doing things to help with that. Um, but uh, also, I mean, I, you know, people who are in positions of power, even, you know, more like local radio stations going on them more and, and supporting them more and trying to grow their following is something as well. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's a hard, I don't think my answer right now was that great, but uh, that, that is a tough question. Yeah, I mean, we need the media to help the citizens become, you know, fully engaged. So and I think, I mean, I'll tell you right now, I think we get the policies we get because of the processes we have. So the little things that keep things the same are what need to be explode, uh, expo exposed and made explicit. Mm -hmm. right. um, and so I, uh, I mean, I hope you get in and I hope you can clarify the fight in a way that will help us change the quality of processes that make it easier for people to be engaged. Right. in a meaningful way and not just mm -hmm. used and pumped for their vote like a human like right. a natural resource right yeah um, yeah absolutely yeah all right well thank so, you for your time and yeah, uh keep us in keep us uh abreast of what's going on also if if for any reason your incumbent decides not to show up for a debate that's a problem make sure i know because that's a thing that happens Right. Uh, that I want to stop right now. Right. Um, I think every person going for an elected office should be willing to sit down at least three times with the person um, they're running against. And if they're not willing to do that, they are not prepared for the office. And that should be a national conversation about what our democracy needs in order right. to be viable. Yeah, absolutely. Agree with you there. So, but yeah, thanks again for having me on. Good. Hopefully I'll be, can be back soon.